Hi, everyone. Welcome to the 5-1 Volleyball Podcast. We're finally back from a post-VNL little break here, but ready to get into the most exciting part of the season here, of the entire summer, of the entire year. The Olympics are finally almost here, which is amazing to say. And there's no better person to help me break down the pools here than Rob St. Clair. How are you doing, Rob? Great, Dan. I am so excited for the Olympics. I'm just so excited. It's been a year longer than we wanted it to be. It's been five years since we've had this to look forward to. The coverage will be everywhere. The pools, the schedules, the rosters are all released. VNL is over. We know about as much as we're going to know going into this thing, and I'm excited to break it down. Yeah, so Rob, you've been doing a little commentary, a little, uh, a few things here and there recently. What have you been up to? I've been up to a decent amount. We had the, we wrapped up the 2021 VLA season. The Volleyball League of America crowned a champion. Uh, the Chicago Icemen winning back to back. So that was very cool. We had some fun in Florida a few weeks ago. Uh, I got on the mic at Wapaka Boat Ride last weekend, which was very cool. A big outdoor tournament in the U.S. So. Yeah, I've, I've been doing my thing out in the volleyball world, but uh, my plan for these next three weeks is to do almost nothing but watch Olympics. I have, I've had all the USA matches on my calendar for months. I've got all the matches, the, the good matches from all the teams recorded. I'm, I'm totally ready to consume all, all this Olympic volleyball. I can't wait. Yeah, so get those alarms ready, guys. Unfortunately, the Japanese timing... I mean, it works. It's it's okay for a lot of people. Sometimes it doesn't always work out. Rob, you were saying that for those living uh, on the East Coast of North America, it actually does work pretty well to watch uh, USA games. But we'll see. It's going to be some weird times. You guys might have to take a day off work or set wake up at 3 a.m. But guys, it's <laughs> Olympic volleyball. You only have to do this once every once every four years. So yeah, you you do what it takes. The, <laughs> check out the the schedules. I I just know how they're being shown in the U.S. I think that. Um, televised wise, either NBC or NBC Sports will have them. But then if you go online, you can find them more on demand. So check out the situation in your country to watch all the matches because uh, if you if you miss any of the big ones, you're going to get left behind. Exactly. Or you can just listen about the matches on there the Five One Volleyball recaps, things like that. Um, so guys, check out Volleyball World does have an Olympic dedicated site, so you can see the roster schedule. It's not a ton of information, but it should get you caught up with at least the basics. But I know you guys came here to this podcast for more than the basics. Some advanced insight by two volleyball analysts who think they know what they're talking about. Rob, let's start with uh, Pool A. All right, so Pool A, uh, I think we have to admit that it's the easier of the two. Uh, Come on, what? (laughs) Got elite teams like Venezuela, Canada, Japan. Japan, the the best team in the entire tournament. (laughs) Is that right? (laughs) (laughs) So some some pandering on the 5-1 volleyball podcast these days. Uh, So yeah, we've got Poland, Italy, Canada, Japan, Iran, Venezuela. That is pool A. Um, Forgive us in advance for not talking about Venezuela very much. I don't know anything about them. Dan, I, here, this this is a 15-second window for you to talk about Venezuela, and then we can move on. Well, let's get this out of the way for Venezuela. They, uh, it's, it's great that the Olympics allows um, representation from a def- bunch of different federations. Unfortunately, Venezuela is probably the worst team to qualify through the Continental Championships 
you know, you see Norseka, the next team up would have been Cuba, which would have been a, a very interesting team. In Europe, it would have been Germany and maybe Slovenia, which would have Slovenia or or Serbia. Oh my gosh. Or Bulgaria. Any of those Bulgaria, or, which is how this all happened. They almost beat Brazil in the qualification tournament, which would have been perfect, Rob. They would have. Also, if Canada wouldn't have blown it to Argentina, it also would have been perfect. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, it just kind of worked out that, oh yeah, yeah the Argentina versus Canada. Ooh, don't remind me about Sorry that Sorry to bring that one up again. <laughs> yeah, but or, or in, even in the Asian region, you have, you know, you have China or Australia, which even those two teams, I think, would be a lot more interesting than venezuela so unfortunately argentina brazil too good qualified through the tournament the third team could have been chile could have been venezuela but that's all we're going to mention they're not I, I would say rob there's even a big gap between tunisia and venezuela i agree tunisia at least like plays in world cup and like tournaments like that venezuela does not i do not think there's a chance that they win a match i would be surprised if they want to set and i think we're just going to leave it at that Yep, let's leave it at that and get to the real juicy parts of the episode, which is talking about each of these teams. And guys, a lot of you guys are listening are Canadian, so we'll get that out of the way first. Let's do it. Team Canada with an interesting story going into the tournament. A rough, rough start at the start of VNL. Quickly found themselves out of the playoff race, losing several matches early on. But Rob, we saw them win what was it i think six in a row to end the tournaments granted an easier schedule at the end of those but i mean canada a little bit of momentum coming into the olympics maybe maybe still some weird um some weird lineup picks and things like that going on but at least they can come to the tournament with a little bit of confidence Agreed. Yeah, that, that run that Canada went on there at the end of vnl was really promising um i think between that the hopefully confidence they have in the roster that they chose and the pool that they were drawn being easier than the other one. Um, there's a lot of reason for optimism for Canada to make it out of this pool. Uh, yeah, for sure. I, I would like pick you said, them the easier pool, right now. the much yeah, easier for sure. pool. For sure, the easier pool. If, I would definitely were, pick them to do so right now. Yeah, I would pick them to go out as well. Uh, the interesting roster decision to me, and I think, I think it's actually one of the most interesting ones of the entire Olympic roster selection process, was leaving Eric Lepke off for Stephen Marshall, which I don't know what the... For me, Lepke is, is the better player right now, even if he is younger and unproven. He just had a season starting in the Italian Superliga where Stephen Marshall has never played. Marshall, he's, he's a great player. He's, you know, he can play libero. He can play outside hitter. He's definitely more of that L2 pass first guy. But he didn't have a great showing at VNL, so I think a lot of people were confused Okay, maybe Lepke's serve can win you, you know, get you a couple points here and there. Maybe he's a better, you know, attacking sub to come in in the front row for maybe uh, if one of our attackers is struggling. So, again, it's a marginal move on on the on the edge of the roster, so it probably won't end up mattering. But it's too bad. I, we, we we've talked about Lepke a lot on the show, and it's sad not to see him at the Olympics. Yeah, I was interested in that too. Um... Lepke very and Brett Walsh also left off the roster, both kind of the future of the program in a lot of ways at those two positions. Um, so I, th I thought it might have been worthwhile for the future just to bring them along. Uh, just everything about the Olympic experience, even if you don't see the court really helps when you get there the next time. But I want to make a point that I made on Everett show on the volleyball source podcast after the USA announced their Olympic rosters, which was I think the first team of both genders to do so. And that's that when when a coach is thinking about the Olympics, 
uh, everything outside of the perceived starting seven. So those other five players, because of course the Olympics, you only take 12. uh, Those other five guys have to be thought of in a very, very specific set of use cases for the Olympics only. So what, assuming that you know your starting lineup going in, which we can talk about that in a second with Canada. I think most of those spots are pretty well decided, but there actually are some question marks. But the other guys, like like you're saying, Marshall or Lepke would have been on the edge of the roster. Neither of them would likely to start, would be likely to start. So you got to think about exactly what they might be used for off the bench in an Olympic circumstance only. And I think that right there, Marshall has a couple versatile options that he can be used for in particular the fact that he can play libero in case of some catastrophe to Blair ban that really gives him a lot of value as being added onto this roster um, I know we saw him at libero and VNL and it did not go particularly well but at least it's an option in case of emergency um, as, as a back row substitute for someone as a serving sub for someone I, I think he might be a little bit more prepared to be inserted off the bench into some weird little role here and there and that is that would, that's his role. That's his role on this team. He's not going to, I would be shocked if he played six rotation outside hitter at any point in this Olympics, but his role on this roster other than in the practice gym is to come in off the bench and do a couple weird things here and there for coach Glenn Hogue. And I think that calculated very specific use cases, why Marshall was given the nod over Lepke. Like in an Olympics, you can't be thinking about anything other than winning that Olympics. And I know that it would have been nice to get Lepke in for the next Olympics, but that's not what they're thinking about here. They're thinking about this Olympics only. And I think that's the reason for the decision. I think that especially teams like Canada, teams like the U.S., teams that are so process driven rather than results driven um, have been working towards these rosters for five years now and have those really specific use cases and everything down to the little details of why the 12 guys are chosen versus others. So I think that might be a little bit of what's going on there with that fourth, probably fourth outside hitter spot. That's a really good point, Rob. And I think you nailed it. I think that's something that's going to come up throughout all these previews of all these teams is it's not the best player that you're going to pick. It's not the guy who's going to, you know, have the highest hitting efficiency necessarily. It's just the, yeah, like you said, a guy who might be the only float server on a, on a jump serving team, a guy who's just going to be a big right side sub for your setter in one specific rotation. It's such a tight tournament that, you know, it's, it's just, it's a real interesting coaching uh, decision, which I think, like you said, leads to decisions like this, where, okay, Lepke is the better overall player than Marshall, but Marshall has, yeah, like you said, you know, could can be that libero or interesting a weirdly good blocker as well so yeah, i don't know if you see is. him in the front row for tj sanders maybe or something like that anyway well, he can Canada, set. that's actually a great yeah point, he can set too yeah. sanders needs a sub and you don't want to bring jay blake now in for example if you use a 6-2 or whatever if you want a blocking sub and not sacrifice that much in transition maybe see marshall's your guy that's a good point yeah it's it's little little really specific cases like that especially at point 20 or later in a set where you're likely to see these guys coming off the bench. And those usages have to be very calculated and decided in these rosters. Yeah. So before we get into the uh, projected starting lineup here for Canada, fifth best defense in VNL in terms of opponent hitting efficiency, eighth best offense. So I think that, I think that goes a little bit by the eye test, probably Canada a bit better with uh, back row defense and, and blocking and you can see, especially the pin hitters sometimes aren't as efficient as some of the best on the top team. So I think that that makes sense based on what we've seen. Um, 
So let's go over the the starting lineup here. I think Gord Perrin, good bounce back season. I think he's a he's a lock for Agreed. starting it, and that's a great benefit for Canada. I don't think people have talked about is that he's recovered from this back injury and now he's playing as a top twenty outside hitter in the world, probably one of the top guys at the tournament. So hopefully he can continue that. The second outside hitter, I think I think it still has to go to Stephen Marr, even though we saw him on the bench a lot during the VNL. But for me, Nick Hogue, uh, one of the least efficient players in, in VNL. So I, I, I don't know. I, I, he has a bit of the coach's son syndrome at times. And he had, he had some good moments at VNL. I think he's a very streaky player. He can you know go on some big service runs. He has a nice jump serve. But I think he's a player that, for me, like looks better than he plays a lot of the time because he, he does uh, miss so many kind of simple shots. That's a very good take. I think if you want offense, you, you got to put Stephen Marr in there. And I think that is what Canada kind of needs. And I think that is where they'll go. Yeah. And then Libero, obviously, Bear Bit Blair Band, the perpetually no underrated, still, still, Dude, still doesn't get easily still top get 10 respect. in the world, probably yeah. top five. And I don't think we talk about it. <laughs> oh, anymore. wow. Top five. Okay. I'll Close. take that. I don't, know, I don't know if I would put it that far, but yeah, he's, he's right up there, guys. Um, then we have middle blockers. We have, uh, Graham Fygrass, again, another very underrated player, one of the top middle blockers in the world. The second one, Van Burkle Schwartz. We could see either one. Uh, I don't really care either way. They're both, uh, <laughs> I could see either one. Let's give it to Schwartz so our friend Schwartz probably just gets really Schwartz happy better on offense. Van Burkle yeah. probably a bit stronger in blocking. Schwartz then, can serve, though. Exactly. Yeah, the serve is huge. So that actually might put it over the edge. We saw a couple times. During uh, VNL, so the you know, Schwartz with his headband getting fired up on the service line. <laughs> Needs like a haircut that. badly. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe for the Olympics. And then finally for me, I mean, the two most interesting positions, the setter and the opposite, because really they could both go either way. And I think it's is there's both of the positions are high risk, high reward in Shawan Vernon Evans and TJ Sanders, who I think at their best are, are much better players and can give Canada the push they need. But at the same time, Ryan Sclater and Jay Blankenau have been uh, a lot steadier and consistent over the past maybe 18 months. That's exactly right. I completely agree with that. Uh, the risk of TJ versus and Shawan are very different. Um, Shawan, you can get a 500 hitting efficiency or you can get a negative 500 hitting efficiency. The risk with TJ Sanders is his health. Uh, I think if he's healthy enough, he's clearly the, the superior setter, uh, but coming off of a very significant back injury, still working his way back into it. The fact that he's named to this roster is a good sign that tells me that he's ready to play because if he wasn't then Brett Walsh is so capable that unless TJ was a hundred percent I would have brought Brett Walsh in his place because that, that that's very just very very important so that tells me that Sanders is ready to go and I actually do expect him to start just because of that pattern and those decisions so we'll monitor his health I expect him to be the starting setter and Canada I'm sure you guys are very happy to have him back we are, we are, and I mean, he's a, uh, runs the offense in such a, such a quicker and, and more dynamic way than a lot of other setters. Like you said, the health. I think you could see that him coming maybe at the end of sets a lot of times, set like four or five balls at the end of sets. Again, in ideal world, he's starting the entire tournament start to finish. But I still, I still don't think he's a hundred percent. I don't think yeah. we saw him being a hundred percent of VNL. But again, we'll we'll see. We'll see how TJ Sanders. Maybe 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 he was ready, and they were just. Uh, they were hiding him, hiding for the Olympics. Well, a, a certain team that I'm wearing on my chest right now knows a thing or two about that strategy. Yes. All right, so Canada, I think we both have moving on. Um, Rob, you pick the next team. Who do you want to talk about next? 
Let's talk about their first opponent. Uh, I think that actually might be the first match of the entire tournament. It is. It is. Okay. Yeah. Canada versus Italy starting ah. things off. Which I think we've mentioned earlier today talking about maybe a bit of a, a trap game almost for Italy. Dude, um, I agree. I think it kind of is. Italy, I think on paper, there's for sure the stronger team. And I both think we both agree. Italy with uh, the addition of the unicorn, the volleyball unicorn, Alessandro Micheletto, uh, plugging in like perfect fits in, in, into the hole they have. It's like that Japanese game show where the person has to <laughs> yeah, <laughs> go through the wall. Micheletto was the perfect size for that. Well, hand. if they had a, a seven foot tall or 200 centimeter left-handed passing wizard mold, that's... Uh, <laughs> That's yeah, exactly mission, what they mission accomplished. Yeah, so they they found that second outside, the thing that they struggled with so much in 2016 in the Olympics, and uh, really ever since Osmani Wanturena became Italian, this has been the thing that Italy is missing. They discovered Simone Gianelli very shortly before 2016. They have now discovered Alessandro Micheletto just in time to put him on the Olympic roster. In here in 2021, uh, he had a very good VNL. Uh, he was one of the very few Italian Olympians who even bothered to spend their time at that tournament. I think it was just him and Spertoli, the backup setter. Uh, yeah, it was. Should have been Belasso too, but uh... <laughs> agreed. Yeah, Belasso played well. So uh, that Italian B team, by the way, outperformed expectation of VNL. They looked way better than expected. But um, we're not talking about future Italy. We're talking about current Italy, 2021 Italy. Um, and we talked about this earlier this morning, Dan, as we were highlighting Italy from a CEV lens. Uh, this might be the, their, this particular core of players' last shot at Olympic golds. Um, I think with the addition of Micheletto, they are in that contender, like legitimate gold medal contender level. They're in that tier of a team now with Zaitsev, Wanturena, Micheletto, Gianelli, whatever two medals, and Kalachi at Libero. That is a very, very good complete international starting seven uh, what we don't know is exactly how they're going to fit together we haven't seen him in a few months we haven't seen or a few years really we don't know exactly what Mikaleo is going to look like across from Juan Terena just in that system whatever uh, we don't know which Ivan Zaitsev we're going to get after a club season where he was okay but not particularly stellar um, coming back to Italy this club season might help uh, Juan Terena amazing as always but just on the edge of that tipping point in age, um, I don't doubt him at all in this Olympics, but I do assume that this will be his last. So Italy, very interesting. I think they're gonna, they will need to come out against a good Canadian team and figure themselves out in high-level competition quickly because Canada's not a team you can sleep on. Right, circling back to the original point of the trap game for Italy. Right. Even though you bit up a bit of leeway in this pool, I would say compared to Pool B, but yeah, Canada, very strong team. They're, they've been playing together, training together all throughout VNL, uh, really experienced group of guys. And then Italy, I know they, I'm sure they've been playing together as well, but you have people coming in from all over the place. I'm sure Wanterina and Zaitsev both took a decent chunk of time off after their club seasons. And so you get your first real taste of competition going against a, a tough, if not elite team in Canada. And, and drop that one could be very possible. But I think we both agree, Rob, that with the perfect, like that, Alessandro Micheletto really tilts um, Italy from good to, to very, very good. And I, I think I think they're a medal contender at this Olympics. I would put them in that, the maybe just second tier after after the, the top elite gold medal Olympic contenders. Agreed. And uh, despite my own personal vendetta against Italy for knocking the U.S. out of the last two Olympics, 
which is very frustrating. I will give them the warning that if you sleep on Canada in the first match, it's not going to go well for you because that obviously happened to the U.S. in 2016. So uh, that is a very legitimate trap game that I'm excited to watch, and I'll be rooting for Canada. Dan, you're welcome. Thank you for that, Rob. But and the yeah, last thing welcome. on Italy, I, I think Belasso. I think he proved it. Fianna. He should have been named to the roster. I think he's really? a better libero right now than Massimo Calacci. Very interesting. And we were talking I know, about I know I'm not the only person to think that either. I, I'm I'm not totally off board with that take. I think Palazzo clearly the future. Uh, Italy actually brought two liberos to the Olympics in 2016. I think they were the only team to do that. They brought Calacci and Rossini just because they were struggling so hard with that second outside spot. They don't have that problem as much anymore. So opting for a fourth outside or third middle or whatever it is. But I don't know, Dan. I, I don't think it's going to make that much of a difference to really be that big of news between Kalachi and Belasso. But um, definitely worth mentioning because Belasso did have a very good Vienna. Exactly. So I think Italy, both of us also agree moving on. Yeah. Let's go to the other European team here. This will be my pick. And that is Poland, a team who has just by far, it's not even a little bit close, the most talked about team on social media if you ever guys ever go do yourselves a favor polish volleyball forums are like way more advanced than anything we're talking about in english i'm sorry they're like, the they, best fans in volleyball man they really are they the really minutiae that they get into talking about individual players strengths and weaknesses different tactics they like every single roster decision here was endlessly debated and we debated it a bit rob i think you did a pretty good job of uh of predicting this roster that poland ended up bringing i did go 12 for 12 thank you there thank you, you very much including a couple uh picks that we weren't quite sure about in uh Semenik and schlifka the zaxa boys but well done to them getting on this roster and with poland i think still i, I still i know i know they lost to brazil in the vienna finals i still think they are the favorites going into this tournament I just can't pick against them. The, the The match that Wilfredo Leon had in the finals was incredibly uncharacteristic. And I know it wasn't good. What did you say, like 5 for 24? 5 for 24 in the finals. That's yeah. that's not good at all, especially for a player of his caliber. But if you if that's the, the your only impression of Wilfredo Leon, then clearly you haven't been paying attention. Um, do not count the guy out. He had 13 aces in a match in VNL, which is a number that doesn't even make sense. Yeah, let, let, I want to oh make sure we goodness. talk about that. 13, 13 aces in a four-set match. 13. And, and I hate to, to do my basketball comparisons, but it's like he's redefining serving in the same way that like Steph Curry redefining is redefining three-pointers. Three almost, it's almost funny because you have the same like 13 like aces or threes by Steph has like, happened recently and was huge news. 13 yeah it's crazy it's absolutely insane like i don't know if i've ever seen a team with 13 aces in a yeah. match and he i mean I, I was watching like i've watched i mean i've watched that run several times both from the too. <laughs> broadcast perspective and from like the back row scouting perspective and like like they didn't know what they had, they didn't know what to do uh serbia i mean there was nothing you could do he was he was painting both sidelines he was painting both seams he was hitting the ball like what 130 kilometers an hour he was like absolutely lighting up the speed gun and then he like cut a couple short and like dropped them at about yeah. 10 or 12 feet off the net like you can't stop that when a guy is on that sort of a roll so when you catch Wilfredo Leon on any day that's better than five for 24, which for him is pretty much every day, um, Poland's obviously extremely dangerous. The thing about them, though, is as, as great as their roster is top to bottom, we still don't really know their starting lineup. 
we don't really know which two of the three middles, and I honestly think they're all interchangeable. We assume that Bartosz Kurek will be the opposite, but we don't know exactly what we're going to get out of them in a given match. Will it be 2018 Bartosz Kurek, or will it be like, I don't know, well, Jap- Japanese pro club Bartosz but, Kurek? But and people forget, here. Rob, people forget that 2018 Bartosz Kurek was actually not that good until the finals. He did not, exactly. <laughs> like, he did not have the greatest tournament. He had a, he freaking had one of the best volleyball games of all time in the finals. But, you know, up until that point, he was, he was like one, one of every three games. He would, he would have a really good game. And the other times he was, I mean, you still see Bartosz Kurek. You see that, you know, like Leon too, where it almost feels like they can score every single time they're high enough. They, uh, they're the timings, right. But I mean, it's obviously incredibly hard to score at that level in volleyball, but yeah, sometimes it's just not. They're missing hands. They're like hitting a little wide on their cross shots. But we'll see. We'll see with Bartosz Kurek. I think, like you said, there, there's a couple wild cards here. Um, and and Leon, I didn't have in the wild card category at all before. No. You know, but now, now I'm like, is he? Is he a little bit? I don't think so. I I, yeah. I still don't think so. What what is a wild card is the second outside hitter. We I think we're both on the same page that Mikhail Kubiak will start. Um, but I think we're also on the same page that he it doesn't necessarily mean that he should. Yeah, and I th- I think he had a good tournament. I'm probably more comfortable with him starting now than I was before VNL. I think yes, he had he he had a it's funny. I feel like people don't talk about Mihal Kubiak stinkers, but yeah, he I mean half the games <laughs> half the games he was hitting fairly poorly. I'll see if I can pull up excuse me his stats here. But uh yeah. I mean so on, on paper you think Shifka and Semenik are probably the better players at this point in their career. Right. So while you dig up some stats, it's a good time to mention that uh, kind of a joke that we've told before, where which is if you made a 12-man roster of exclusively outside hitters, like only 12 outside hitters, Poland would just stomp on everyone else in the world that it wouldn't even be close. And that actually kind of makes Heinen's decisions difficult for this Olympics because you have Kubiak, the veteran, who kind of has earned this spot over like decades of very, very good play. But right at his heels, you have the reigning MVP of the Champions League, Alexander Schliefka. And you have another Champions League winner in Camille Semenyuk, both of whom aren't that different in play style to Kubiak, but might do it in each area ever so slightly better, except maybe the intangibles. So that's why that decision is so difficult. Okay. You're obviously you're obviously going to start with Fredo Leon. That's not even close, but Slivka, Semenyuk, or Kubiak are kind of interchangeable, and that's actually not that good of a spot to be. You want to know who your starters are. Okay, so Rob, I have some numbers here to back up our arguments. So uh, let's play a game here. <laughs> who do you think of the three, those Semenik, Slivka, Kubiak, who do you think is the most efficient hitter? Slivka. No, Semenik, 42.5 hitting efficiency, which is top 10 in VNL. Uh, then right behind him, Schlifka, 40.6%. And then down, kind of far down over here with, with uh, Engaped and uh, Dmitry Volkov oh, is, yeah. uh, is Kubiak at 33 efficiency. Okay. So not that surprising. I think if you, yeah, Schlifka or Semenik, one of those two guys is going to be at the top and then probably Kubiak at the bottom. But here we go. I have the reception stats here too. So uh, who do you think is the, who is the best receiver? Of that group, we're doing it. It's like a the reception stat out of three, so it's a. You mean the correct way to do it? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Mm, probably Semenyuk again, maybe Slivka. Semenyuk again. Okay. By by like a good margin, two point three one. That actually might be the best. Dude, that's in- a really good average. 
Yeah, that's, that's a really good passing average for an outside hitter. That's pretty much he was pretty much just behind. Interesting, Rosario and Cleveno were the other one two of, guys. One of whom is not in the Olympics, which is ridiculous. Yeah, Ros- anyway, anyway, so many of the best statistically. <laughs> And then um, I think Kubiak 2.15 and then Schliefka 2.04. So, yeah. Right. I mean, Semenik was the best attacker and the uh, the best receiver. So, for me, look at the numbers. Who is the best player? But Okay. So, outside of that conversation, I think to wrap up things with Poland is think about it this way. You have Wilfredo Leon. You have Bartosz Kurek, who went on, could potentially be the best player in a given match or a tournament. You have remarkably good attacking middles, and then you have whichever second outside hitter you want. You have so much firepower. Whose job is it to get the most out of them? Uh, I see where you're going with this, Rob. That would be the setter. And the only thing really stopping Poland from being a runaway favorite in this Olympics is an elite caliber setter. They... Have Fabian Druzga and Gregor Swomach, neither of which are top twenty in the world, in my opinion. That's that, there's a lot of people who do not share that opinion too. Really, so I feel like a lot of people who are higher on Druzga than we are. Oh yeah, and I think it's because he's benefited so much from having those from having good players, career. and because that is such point. a difficult position, especially for uh, honestly like casual fans, but the average fan to 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 analyze so a lot of time they just default to team success when it comes to you know ranking setters and for me that's and you as well i'm sure that's not at all how, how you think it should go i think no, it's not i don't think that poland wins despite trisha i think he's a good player but yeah like you said good but not definitely not a elite he's kind of like a nikola jovovich on serbia to a certain extent like he's a little better than that he's, he's I- better than him but kind of like good player but you know when you're when you're talking about like Tony Udis or or Brunos or or any of these guys at the top. I don't, so I don't think, think about it this there. way. Think about it this way. In VNL finals, Brazil played the matchup against Poland better than any team possibly could have, in my opinion. They and they actually did the whole world a favor on kind of writing the book on how to beat this Polish team. Um, the level of defense and the blocking and the way that they understood the matchups against all of Poland's hitters and then maybe getting a little lucky and catching Wilfredo Leon on a down day was remarkable. And I think the whole world should thank Brazil for that contribution. But when you get, when you're, if you're Poland and you get in that situation, especially in the medal rounds of the Olympics, if you come across another phenomenally good team who understands you and understands how to play against you, the player that can turn that matchup should be the setter. If your team is having a little bit of trouble siding out or terminating against block and defense of another team that's kind of figured you out, it is up to the setter to turn things around. And I don't think Drizga is capable of turning the, the entire tides of a match by himself with just the, the way that he can outthink another team offensively. Like that's what Tony Udi is good at. That's what DiCecco is good at. That's what Maruf is good at, maybe with even some inferior talent around him. But like if you put Maruf on the Polish national team, it would be game over, uh, just because he he outthinks everybody like that. I think that's what Poland needs. Oh, it's not even Maruf. close to what they have. Yes, that would be uh, that would be really fun. And I think that's like also like you're saying that's the reason why Drzyska hasn't had the uh, the club success that a lot of these top setters have had. Whether it's because the top club teams don't take him because he's he's not at that level, or you know he can't bring a team to that level. I think that's why you see, you know, he he, he won the Plus League in 2015. He 
won a silver in Champions League 2015, but outside of that season, there hasn't really been much going on for his club career. Still, though, Poland is a medal favorite. I, they will obviously make it out of this pool. They very well could win this pool. Um, let's say they win this pool. And which, whichever poor team in Pool B has to fight really oh hard to get fourth is going to get Poland in the first round. Canada! <laughs> Canada's not going to have that problem. In, in crossovers, it very well may be the USA who gets fourth That's in Pool true. B. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's we're talking. Yeah, and has to play Poland in the quarterfinals. I don't envy whoever that happens to be. Um, but come the medal rounds, like I'm saying, when, when Poland is really pushed to their limits by some other truly elite teams, um, we'll we'll see what they have in response. And Rob, before we move on here, is Brazil versus Poland? Is that like is that the matchup we're going to see? Is it a foregone conclusion? Oh no, it's not a foregone conclusion. There, there's too much other there's there's too much other talent in the rest of this tournament, and too many wild cards. Like especially when. We talked about this, about pools in the Olympics. One match that you make a mistake and you lose a match you're not supposed to, or somebody comes out of nowhere, or somebody gets a weird matchup in the quarterfinals, absolutely anything can happen. So nothing about the Olympics is ever a foregone conclusion. I think Brazil and Poland are the two best teams, but I don't necessarily think that both of them are going to get to the gold medal match, at least not without a bunch of difficulty. I, I, I agree with that. I think, you know, like you said, Anything can happen in the Olympics. We've seen the Olympics is always unpredictable. There's not going to ever be a foregone conclusion. Could see a lot of different teams in the finals. Don't don't expect Brazil versus Poland. It could happen, but I wouldn't definitely wouldn't uh, count on it. Okay, so Rob, we have two teams left. Pool A, um, two of our Asian teams. Which one do you want to talk about first? Let's talk about the hosts and the fan favorites. I don't want to spend that much time on Japan. Uh, but we would be doing ourselves in the world a disservice if we didn't talk about Japan. Um, first of all, playing at home, but without fans, which is a shame. We love the Japanese volleyball fans. I'm always really impressed every World Cup that's hosted in Japan, how how energetic and, and enthusiastic the fans are in Japan. But they, And they respectful, have too. They're, respectful, exactly. They put a lot of energy behind the team without it ever being uh, disrespectful or annoying or anything like that. Agreed. So it's going to be a shame not to have the really Olympic atmosphere in the arena in the Olympics. Um, and that hurts Japan a little bit. They, they obviously feed off of that. Their, their home fans love that team very much, men's and women's. Uh, but just volleyball-wise, um, I'm a little higher on Japan now than I was after they figure out a way to beat Russia in VNL. That really came out of nowhere. Yeah, because like we talked about, that's always a traditional, really tough game for a team like Japan to win, where they're they're outsized, but I think I think it's over ten centimeters is the average is size difference. Absurd. Like I, if people listening, if you're going up against a blocker that's ten centimeters taller than you, you're usually like, all right, not going to be not going to be my game today. Like I'm, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's 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 not going to be fun. It's but true. Japan, Even like just the mental the mental yeah, aspect exactly. of being Japan playing against Russia um, is difficult enough, and then to have to execute and, and win beat them in that matchup somehow is is impressive. So they were able to do that. Um, without Yuji Nishida, I believe. Yeah, uh, no Yuji Nishida. Remember that was a that was Izzy Otake, I think, had an unbelievable yeah. game. Which, Coming by the way, party. He, he was horrible the rest of the tournament. Yeah, he was. He was so bad. <laughs> like really, like like one of the arguably the worst opposite in the entire tournament. But but uh, luckily they won't have that issue. Japan, they'll have Yuji Nishida back, which Rob I think is that that's a pe- I almost think he's maybe maybe not in the wider volleyball world, but I feel like in in our volleyball discussions, I feel like Yuji Nishida, a bit underrated. 
Yeah, it, that's got to be only specific to our little volleyball world because <laughs> yes. uh, if you look at social media, you would you would interpret that very differently. No, Nishida can play. I, I remember we were talking a couple of years ago about is Nishida just a pro- a product of a good, quick Japanese system that makes him succeed, or is he just straight up a good opposite, like in a vacuum? And I think I would agree now that you can put him wherever you want, and he'll actually be a really good player on his own. We'll see that in Vibo Valencia this upcoming year which will be very interesting to put that to the test. But on the Olympic level, he's going to be called on to score a lot of points. Um, and the other pins, uh, Yuki Ishikawa and Ron Takahashi for Japan, they're, those are legit players. If they were all three inches taller on average, they would be a dynamite trio of international pins. But they're not. And they have so much, they have to work so much harder, especially from the service line, to beat teams like Russia or whoever that can at least just slow them down with block touches and then run the ball down their throats and transition. So I about just about any matchup that Japan's going to be able to win, they've got to dominate the serve and pass battle, first of all, so that their side out rate is decently high and so that they can really take teams out of system to even have to even have a chance because they're probably the worst blocking team in the entire tournament. At least just based oh, yeah. on pure oh, size. Yeah. Well, maybe Venezuela and Tunisia, but yeah. 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 The, of the of the Sorry, no offense, but yeah. <laughs> of the teams with like a legitimate chance to make it out of pools, I, th- I think they're the worst blocking team of those ten. And blocking is everything at this level. You just have to be able to slow teams down. So uh, again, j- if Japan is just unleashing from the service line, if they get really hot in a match, then they've got a chance to beat anyone. But that is the most unpredictable and least reliable thing in volleyball. So we'll see. Yeah. So Japan was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They were eighth in terms of opponent hitting efficiency in VNL. Um, it's so actually not, not as bad. It's not too bad, thought. but then you look at who's behind them was, um, you know, Australia, Germany, Bulgaria, Netherlands, Iran. So definitely out of like the good teams, they were they were last in terms of opponent hitting efficiency. Um, and then just let me pull up their block touch percentage here because that's also another stat I like in terms of a in terms of who determining who has a good you know blocking defense. And yeah, okay. This is see. This is a good stat because dead last. I test. second to last. Uh, you could probably guess who's behind them. Australia. Australia <laughs> was the only team that had a lower, touched a less percentage of balls, and that has a lot to do with their middles, who are unfortunately both not only slower but also shorter smaller. a lot of the time, which is a really tough two things to put together in the middles. And by the way, all their middles are actually really good middle attackers. <laughs> like yes, they like, are. They can score the ball. Just as like pretty high level, but unfortunately, that is not the most important thing when it comes to that position. It's blocking, and yeah, you would think with some good blocking middles too. Even even if you have the six one Nishida and the six three Ishikawa on the pins, you have some good good middles. You can close out to the pins. You can you'll take that, right? Sure. Yeah, they just they just don't have that. That that's what, in my opinion, what really separates teams to have a chance of winning any international tournament from teams that don't. Uh, and it's not just the middle blocker position; it's the blockers across the board because those teams are so good. Their blocking is down to such an incredibly fast system, science, and an artistic element, obviously, that block touches, like we're talking about in this stat, are often as good as free balls. If you can slow the mm-hmm. ball down, if you can just get half of a hand on Wilfredo Leone even, then your transition offense can run on all cylinders. That is the maybe the most important thing in all of high-level volleyball, especially on the men's side. Because if you get into something that's close to an in-system offensive opportunity, you're, you're 75, 80%, sometimes even higher, just going to 
score that point with ease on the first attempt. So that is massively important and something that, that Japan is just not good at. And that's why I actually have thought about this recently in a certain way. Like in order to win volleyball matches, right, you got to score points on serve. You need to side out at a high enough efficiency to, to hang around, but then here or there in order to get, you know, in order to get two points clear to win a set, you got to win a point on serve, right? So the way you're going to do that is either by serving, like straight up service pressure aces, by blocking like stuff blocks or digs into transition offense. And so every team combines those three things based on their strengths to score points on serve in their own specific way. And so if Japan is going to be unable to get stuff blocks in general and unable to get block touches into transition offense, while back row defensively they are very good, uh, but around an inferior block that's more difficult to do, then the remaining aspect of them scoring points on serve is serving. And that's what I'm saying. They've got to just light it up from the service line to tip the scales in their favor and ability to score break points. And I think it's kind of that simple. For sure. I think, And I think, yeah, I think that's why you see so much frustration sometimes with people watch Japan because they're like, wow, these guys miss a lot of serves. And it's, but they it's because have to. they have they to, have they have to. to serve hard. That's like you said, Rob, that you exactly nailed it. You have to get, you have to get some sort of way to get those break points, take your opponent out of system and, you know, have an opportunity to, to, to get some points on the board. Cause you know, the other, against all these top teams, you know, you know, Russia is going to get kill blocks, you know, Poland's going to get, you know, Poland's going to get aces. You're going to have to deal with this on the other side. So how, how can you get the points yourself? And, you know, but that's why I think maybe uh, like, I think Yuji Nishida, I think he's a huge part of that. Obviously I think top 10 server in volleyball in terms of like, who, who's going to not only get the most aces, but he's, he's relatively consistent, uh, all things considered. Um, Couple more points on Japan before we move on to our last team here. Uh, Tomohiro Yamamoto, a guy who I pretty much didn't know about before the VNL. It was like incredibly impressive to me. And I, I said, like, week two, this guy should be the starting libero at the Olympics. And here we are, Yamamoto there. So glad to see him. And then Ran Takahashi, who I think, um, very hyped up player for good reason. We, I mean, I've, he's been on my radar for, for 18 months or so now. And, you know, I'm glad to say I think he's one of the only teenagers in the tournament. That's always very nice to see uh, and could very well be. I think actually will be um, in a starting role in this tournament. You know, I agree. He doesn't have the attacking yet, but he has the he has the serving and he has the passing. So it's almost similar to Mikaletto. Um, he He's not going to like be the main offensive option. Very different body types. Very <laughs> yeah, different body types. Sure. Almost the exact opposite <laughs> body types. But I think at the end of the day, the role... Where Mikaleta's more of a blocker, Takahashi probably more of a server. But you said at the end of the day, aces and, and blocks are kind of the same thing. Um, yes, they so, are. Great. So point. that's that's why I see it. But Japan, Rob, the big question of the day: Do they make it out of the pool phase? I pick that they do not. I think Canada and Iran will make it over them. Um, those those head-to-head matchups will will decide a lot of that. I don't think Japan can beat either Italy or Poland. Uh, they could beat Canada or Iran, depending on the day. And Canada, I feel like Canada matches up well with Japan. I agree on on the Canada side. Yeah, they're they're bigger. They are pretty fundamental. They're actually extremely good in the blocking area, whether stuff blocks or uh, transition. And so they're as long as they can stay in system, I think they'll have no trouble beating Japan. But that's a segue into Japan's. Asian competition in Iran that they actually should know pretty well by now. They played continental stuff all the time. Um, a team 
that is in an interesting spot with a brand new coach and the legendary Vladimir Alekno coming from Russia to coach the Iranian national team, which I really didn't see coming. Um, they had an okay VNL. Uh, they beat some good teams. They played well and then completely disappeared at times, which is kind of like classic Iran over the past, like oh, in the, in the Maruf era, they have just done that. Sometimes they've caught fire and gone on good runs in tournaments. And then they've also at the same time lost some, some head scratchers. So they're a difficult team to predict, but uh, what's the guy's name? Salehi, the second outside hitter. I'll, I'll look up his first name in a second. That took Iran from a question mark to make it out of pools to uh, an upset threat in any situation. Cause the match he played against the USA in particular, I couldn't believe how good he played uh, yeah. alongside Milad Abadapur. And, and Rob, I have to, I have to pat myself on the back a little bit here. Do you, I was, Do you scout him? No, I did. I actually did not scout Salehi specifically, but I, uh, maybe it was even with you on a podcast, but I was, I was so confused and frustrated with some of the choices that Alekno made for VNL going to the competition, picking some older guys, especially uh, middle outside hitters. I was like, you guys won the U19 or the U21 yes. World Championships. Yes. Get the youth in there. Bring your young, they clearly have mountains of talent because there's even guys that I like that aren't on this Olympic roster. And I think he kind of figured that out throughout the tournament. Okay, even maybe if these guys are, are three or four years from their peak, they're already better than the veteran options we have available. So I think I think it's good. You know, guys, Sabre Kazemi as well was another guy who kind of fit that. Yeah, you would even maybe have him starting above uh, Amir Gafour. Um, like I mentioned earlier, Amir Tukte I would have brought as the middle blocker kind of guy. Um, but yeah, with Maruf and those young guys, the, but I still I still have the same issue. I feel like it's not, it, it's the Maruf timeline and this young generational, golden generation timeline, they're not, they're not in sync. Right. Yeah. There's a, there's a disconnect there and it's a very difficult task for a foreign coach like Alekno to come in and kind of fix that. Now Maruf played for Alekno very briefly that one like twilight of the year in Zenit Kazan. That doesn't, that doesn't really do that much for me. Um, but if you just put on paper their starting lineup, which I expect my son Salehi, um, he wears 17, the, the second outside, he's nasty. I was so impressed by uh, by him in VNL. I think I given who, who they're start. bringing, yeah, he's going to start. Or else yeah, they would have brought a Puryo Fiazzi or someone like that. Right. So I expect him to start alongside Abadapur. Um, you, we didn't see Amir Gafour, I don't think, at all in VNL. Uh, we saw Kazemi, who's the lefty. He's like kind of got a, a weird, a weird little approach. He like leans really far to the side when he attacks the ball. Yeah. Um, whatever. I thought he was actually pretty good. You obviously have Maruf. You obviously have, you obviously have Syed in the middle. Um, the other middle probably Golami. I would expect probably Golami, but yeah, it doesn't matter that much. No, and two liberos. Yeah, uh, three, which I'm three surprised, guy, because I thought I thought uh, Mirandi would have been the very obvious choice. Agreed. Uh, so I'm a little confused by that, but you know, to finish off your Rob, you know, we think Maruf is like this mastermind, amazing setter, cutting through defenses, tricking people all over the place. I ran 14th best hitting efficiency in VNL this year. And I know uh, Maruf didn't play the entire time, but 31% hitting efficiency. You would think uh, just, that's you know, it's got to be better. Yeah, that's yeah. a little strange. Maruf, uh, uh, you know, I thought a Maruf left led team would at worst, you know, be you know, halfway up the roster, even with Iran's kind of shortcomings at the other positions. You think even just uh, Maruf to Basavi and uh, Ibadapur, and I guess Salehi too, that's good enough for uh, for like a 35, 36 hitting efficiency. But no, they're, they're, they're pretty bad, actually. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that that goes to show right there when you, you can get Iran on a really good, streaky, hot performance in a tournament or in a couple of match series or whatever. And then all of a sudden they'll completely fall apart and look like a different team. The lack of consistency, I think, has been there. The thing stopping them from joining the elite echelon of international teams like this past quad and maybe a little bit before. So they're a total wild card. And that's why the Olympics are so cool is because they can beat, especially because they play Poland first thing. And those two teams hate each other. Uh, like they can come out and shock Poland in that first match. I wouldn't be that stunned by that. Or, no, or they, no. or they could, or they could lay down and get rolled over. I mean, I would be, I would be pretty stunned, but I would be stunned. But like, <laughs> it's, it's not impossible. Then, but it's, it's equally as possible as them losing three zero and not even scoring twenty points in a set. So, I, I just don't know. I don't know what I'm going to get out of this team. I do think top to bottom, though, they are a little better than Japan, um, especially in the middle. That's not even close. And uh, I think for that reason, they will get fourth in this pool, and Japan will get fifth. We'll see. Can see it. I mean, you'd like to see the host go through, but unfortunately, not always how it works out, as uh, Great Britain can tell you. <laughs> Different circumstances, but anyway. Yeah. Rob, thanks for uh, breaking down Pool A with me. Um, Olympics start Saturday, July 24th. So coming up pretty, pretty quick here. And uh, yeah, we'll be watching alongside. Rob, do you have, do, are you doing any other Olympic related stuff or? Uh, I don't know, just watching obsessively and uh, chirping people in the Discord in very biased American fashion. So I'm excited for that. Perfect. All right, we'll talk to you guys with Pool B next time.